Welcome to the New Hope Sermon of the Week. We hope you are encouraged by this message by Pastor Tom Sturgis. I'd like you to take your Bibles and have them handy. We need to get on this. I announced two weeks ago I'll be coming back and teaching again on an identical topic. And I said I'm going to preach this sermon. I'm not, I am preaching from that topic and from that scripture, but it is not that sermon. Uh, I am thankful that God's word is living according to Hebrews chapter 4. It says it's living and active. Look at me, please. I think the best way of translating that verb doesn't make sense in our language. It's lifing. It's lifing. The word of God is lifing. You get it on you, and it's infectious. It brings life. And if I were to pray anything every time we gather together and give consideration to the Word of God, it's, Lord, don't just enlighten our minds from a point of knowledge, but infuse our hearts as you, Holy Spirit. See, that's the goal, is for him to write the Word of God on our heart, not just to give us more knowledge. And so I, I pray that that lifing and active Word is written on our hearts every time we encounter God's word, but today especially. We're going to talk about the topic of unforgiveness. If I were to reduce unforgiveness, I guess a most recent adaptation of trying to cut to chase on what unforgiveness is from a spiritual sense, from a relational sense in terms of our relationship to God and with one another. By the way, I'm speaking to believers this morning, although these principles can very well apply to anyone outside the kingdom of God They are true about unforgiveness. But if I were to summarize it, unforgiveness is the point at which, or the state of being, where God's opinion is not enough. Where God's opinion is not enough. Now, I said earlier, we sang earlier, my God is more than enough. That old song jumped into my mind. I didn't have it planned for this morning. And I prayed, pray that it will become a banner of praise here this morning and a tool, a lens to really cause us to examine our heart, as David, as the psalmist would say. The state of being where God's opinion is not enough, or more simply, I will be ruled by my own opinion above God's opinion. Unforgiveness creates that. Now, in order for us to get this, in Matthew 18 story, a very familiar story for those of you that have been in in or around church at any point uh, for any amount of time, it's the, we're going to jump into it in a moment, and it's a story where Peter asks God, how many times should I forgive if someone offends me? Seventy times seven. But before we get there, I want you to look at a verse of Scripture with me that's central to understanding this, and if you can just take my word for that. By the way, does everyone have a little card like this that says God's opinion is enough? Does everyone, if you don't, raise your hand. Okay? Great. Uh, I don't see anybody. If you guys see on the back row, the... Um, Darren doesn't have one because he's out there. You know the guy every one of you drove by and who smiled and waved and pointed? That's the guy that didn't get a card. What's up with that? You know, how could that guy not get a card? That's because he's the last one here. Oh, we have somebody right down here down front. There we go. Thank you. We need these. They'll become important. Now, James chapter 2, verse 13. I don't have time to read all 13 verses that lead up to this. It would be great for you to do that. 
It is, uh, uh, again, an overview where James is writing to a local church and says, you guys are acting as judges when people come in and one is dressed nice and the other one isn't. You say to the one, if you're dressed nice, here's a seat. If you're not dressed nice or have social standing, go stand over here by the wall or whatever. And he really comes down on them. And halfway through verses 1 through 12, he says, have you not become judges with motives born of the evil one from hell, if you will. I'm paraphrasing that. But judges. Now, judging has to do with not just the process of assessing something. That's what happens in a court. But a judge also assigns an ultimate outcome. And they said, he said, you're assigning a a position to a person, and that whole act is born of the evil one. Then we get to verse 13. Here we go. For judgment will be merciless, to the one who has shown no mercy, mercy triumphs over judgment. Notice the word mercy is used two times. The word judgment is used two times. And what's interesting about the word judgment, crisis, is it is a term that represents a legal opinion. A legal opinion. In other words, if you were to go to court for anything in the world, uh, there would typically be an attorney who was your mouthpiece representing you, an attorney representing someone else that may be involved in, if it's civil, if it's criminal, they represent the state. And then there's a judge. All three of those have opinions. It is the job of a prosecuting attorney to represent the opinion uh, of the state, if you will, uh, of government, of law, and that This particular other person has broken the law, and thus, in the legal opinion of the state and this attorney, they should be convicted. It is the job of the attorney representing the person who disagrees to say, no, it is my legal opinion that they are not guilty, and here's why. But there's one voice that has the final legal opinion, and that's the judge, and that's the word we have here. It is the force of an opinion, a legal and binding opinion. Now, in this particular passage of Scripture, James is saying the judgment you've asked, acted on has issued a type of legal opinion against these people who were coming in. That's the setting. That's context. But this verse carries far more meaning than that regarding the power of judgment in our own lives. But, okay, so watch this. For judgment will be merciless <coughs> for those who have shown no mercy. Now let's start here. Mercy. Mercy is God refusing to join me in any opinion. I've changed the definition. Any. Everybody see any? Okay. For God refusing to join me in any opinion of me above his opinion of me. Now, what I mean by using the word opinion, if you haven't been here, uh, I've been hanging out on this for about six months, and I've just got to go right by it. By opinion, I mean force at work in the world. Did you know sin is a default opinion on the identity of mankind. In other words, sin, let me give you a working definition for sin. Sin is finding my identity anywhere in anything other than God's opinion. That's the biblical, that is good, solid Bible. Anytime you read the word sin showing up, Old Testament or New Testament, if you plug in this definition, you will see that it it survives. Sin is finding my identity anywhere 
in anything other than God's opinion or God's word, okay? God's opinion is otherwise God's word. How many get that? How many know that when sin happens, it says it ultimately causes our, our soul to die, that we have abandoned the, 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 the source of life and we're looking someplace else. So why does God have such an attitude about sin? Because he stands like he did all the way back to the Garden of Eden when what happened there was God's word was reduced to just another opinion. Beloved, we have a disease in our culture where the word of God is still reduced to just another opinion. But those of us who live in this thing we call a kingdom of God, those of us who have been born again, we are those who rise up and stand up and say, no, there is a final opinion and a final word on matters of what my life will be worth and how I will be informed about what life is, and that is the word of God. That is not because we need another bumper sticker while we're living in the Bible Belt. It is not because we need another little cliche phrase to throw out. It is not because we need uh, another uh, idiom or another little catchphrase or whatever. It is because the word of God is lifing. It is lifing. And either we will believe that, embrace that, or not. So it's why this is so important. Now, confession. I'm going to give you two more words. Confession is the point at which I embrace God's opinion of me above my opinion of me or any other opinion of me. See, because we can walk into life, and it could be anything from parents who spoke certain things, and as James says, set on fire a course of life. In my particular testimony, many, many, even majority of you have heard of being molested by a Cub Scout leader for a year when I was nine years old, and him saying to me, there's something fundamentally wrong with you. And if you tell your parents about this, they'll put you in a mental institution. He stamped an image of me on my soul with those words. Again, the words of James says that words have the power to set on fire a course of life. And so I reacted to that thinking I have to run faster, jump higher, be better, whatever. Until I found that that Cub Scout leader in his pitiful, broken state can only extend brokenness. And I had listened to an opinion for 20 years that is not the final opinion on Tom Sturbin's. And there are people sitting here today who have an opinion stamped on your soul. It could be the result of a failure. It could be the voice of of anyone in your life, a spouse, an ex-spouse. It could be any, any voice, but that opinion, it's got you. So confession is the point at which I say, Father, every other opinion can go straight back to hell from whence it came. I am going to live by your opinion. Now, very often, we have our own opinion that God resists. We come before the throne of God, and we have opinions about life that are now, as we talked about in the past weeks, they're not the, they're, they're not the opinions of others. John would write, even when my heart condemns me, God is greater than my heart. Are you not thankful for that? So when we come to worship God and we're before his throne, and it says in Hebrews 4, another verse in Hebrews 4, it says to boldly approach a throne of grace where you will receive what first? Mercy and then grace to help us. We approach the throne of grace. Why do we come through mercy first before God gives us grace? Remember what grace does? 
It pushes back and it makes my life bigger. Please listen closely this morning. God will never make my life bigger if in the center of my life is misinformed and a broken assessment of what it's about. If I come with an opinion, why would he create a bigger space for my opinion that is destructive, sin, to hurt me even more. So when we approach this throne of grace where we get grace from God, what do we encounter first? Mercy. He says, first of all, you got to come by my opinion. And Tom, right now, there's an opinion in your own heart that you've come to hold that I don't agree with because my opinion of you is bigger than that opinion that you've allowed to get hold of your heart. Now, when you repent of that and you confess, when you say, Lord... Back to hell with my opinion. I embrace your opinion. Now give me the power to live out your opinion as opposed to being dictated by my own. That's what's happened in worship. So watch. If mercy is God refusing to join me in any opinion of me above his opinion of me, the remedy of that is that I come and confess that I embrace his opinion of me above any opinion of me. Judgment then is this. Listen to me. Back to verse 13. If you could put that back up real quickly, Amanda. For judgment will be what? That word is the only time the word without mercy appears in the Bible. An aleo. It will, judgment is without mercy. Think with me. We have to get this because it's critical to understanding Matthew 18, forgiveness. Judgment is the point of existence where I live without the force of God's opinion. God allowing me, look at the screen, allowing me to live, uh, the choice of living in my opinion of me above his opinion of me. That's judgment. See, we think of Well, you're going to be judged for that. Judgment is the sin, beloved. It is the result. We don't wait for God to do it. God says judgment is what you bring on yourself. Let me me show you, because we have to get this point, that living in judgment is the point at which the force of mercy is insulated from my life. I don't have mercy at work. It's right there. Mercy follows me all the days of my life, but it's not touching me. The force of mercy is not being brought to bear. Look with me at Luke chapter 16. I got to read this quickly. And, and I'm taking it out of the middle of a much longer passage of scripture of a story, a parable that Jesus taught of Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus sat by the gates of the rich man, begged for food. The rich man ignored him and was just despairing uh, towards him. So then they both die. In Hades, he, the rich man, lifted up his eyes, being in torment, okay, and saw Abraham far away. And Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have what? Say it out loud. Have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the finger of his water. Let's test our definition. Father Abraham, please extend the power of God's opinion above my current situation and the opinion that is dictating my situation. Abraham responds, child, remember during your life you received good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but he is now being comforted here and you are in agony. 
And besides all this, listen, between us there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you can, will not be able and then none may cross over from there to us. Listen to me. This is one of the scriptures of reference that when we're teaching on a doctrine of hell or eternal judgment, this is a go-to verse. But I want to ask you this question. At the end of the age, the ultimate judgment is what? I mean, the worst ultimate judgment is that people will go to where? Hell. As horrible as that is to consider. Would you please consider the fact in reality that hell is that eternal state of existence where the force of God's opinion has been withdrawn? I want to let that sink. Whatever you, we try to think of whatever hell may be. Hell is a place where this prevenient force of mercy that insulates against stuff we have no idea it insulates us against is withdrawn. It is the eternal state of existence where the force of mercy is withdrawn. But what I'd like to tell you is that there is a present state of existence where the force of mercy is withdrawn. And we're about to read about that. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Would you please look at that? Then Peter came to him, him being Jesus. You can listen to the sermon from two weeks ago, and it was a very different approach to it, as a matter of fact. And you're welcome to hear the backdrop on on why Peter becomes a significant voice in asking the question. Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. There's a word called hyperbole. It's used a lot by Jesus and Paul. And it means an extreme sense of exaggeration. But hyperbole is exaggerating, but everybody knows you're exaggerating. Okay, so like uh, if I ask, let's see, um, let me make something up here. What can I, what can I ask? Let me see, I'm looking for uh, Tom Hodge. I'll pick on Tom at that Hodge. They live on the Lake Douglas. I say, and he was born and raised here. He grew up fishing and just hanging out around Lake Douglas. If you were to ask Tom, said, well, well how many times have you been, been out on Lake Douglas? He said, man, I don't know, a million times. We would know that he didn't really mean he had been there literally one more time than 999,999. We would get it, okay? That's what this means. Peter asked, and there's a reason why he asked for the seven times, and Jesus said, no, 70 times seven, or he could 7,000 times or 7 million times. So he's not looking for a fixed number, and it's important. Verse 23, then Jesus begins to speak, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want to cut to chase. Everybody say kingdom of heaven. Would you jump ahead real quickly and look at verse 35? I'm not going to tell you. We'll see how we get there. Verse 35 says this. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you. Whatever is going on in this parable, that's the closing verse. And whatever is going on in this parable, Jesus understands that who he is talking about is the heavenly Father. So as we start to read, let's back up. Verse 23, for this reason the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king. Who is the king in this story? God. God. Everybody got that? Look at the person next to you and say, it's God. Okay, great. Let's go. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. 
When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. 10,000 talents, it's another hyperbole. 10,000 talents by 2018 uh, calculation of United States currency is about $8 billion. You understand the concept of billion in the Near Eastern ancient culture would have been just absolutely... There was no way in a hundred lifetimes that this debt could be paid. This is critical that we get this point. Whatever he's talking about, he's using, again, this extreme exaggeration to to convey this point. If I'd have been smart, I'd have had somebody like uh, Scott Conitzer, who is an accountant, CPA, and tell me how long it would take to pay off eight billion dollars at a payment of a thousand dollars a month i can't even imagine it would just be crazy you you would begin to get it can't be done so what he's saying is he owed a debt that could never be paid you need to get this look at please indulge me i'm not being teachy or pedantic or whatever please look at the person next to you look don't just lean over your shoulder look them in the eye and say he owed a debt that everyone understood could never be paid. Please tell them that right now. Thank you. Let's keep going. But since he did not have the means to repay the great king, the Lord commanded him to be sold. This was typical of the Near Eastern ancient culture in terms of a debtor's prison, along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made in that fashion, okay? Even selling him, it would have not been satisfied. But the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. Someday I'm going to come back on this and teach at greater length, but I want us to get it. The word prostrated himself is the identical word translated worship, proskuneo. And it said he worshiped, he fell on the ground. And the poetic intimation is this. Let me just ask this question. So many of us sitting in this room today, we worship God on the base of debt. Every time you come before him, it was some looming echo of something. Many of us do. I grew up in a church with a, quote, holiness. That's what they called it, of all things. Holiness theology, and it was anything but that. That said, if you don't dress like this, look like this, go here, eat that, don't drink this, do this. And and everything from dancing to even further back in my mother's lifetime, if you drank Coca-Cola. You were a sinner and going to hell. And their worship was very much oriented in a guilt orientation. Please notice that if this great king is God and his son is telling the story, he's trying to reorient those who were listening because they knew only life under the law. That that is those to whom he was speaking. And he says, I want you to understand that the great father, the king, he does not want us worshiping him from a debt posture. Why? Because he's paid it. Okay, watch. I I just got to stop there. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him. Afiyami canceled the debt, forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii and seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. A hundred denarii was about four months wage. Now you See, there's no way to compute that 
today accurately unless you say, well, let's just take a, in the range of a $10 to $15 an hour job and sort of that median line, then it's going to be about ten or $11,000. So it's not an inconsequential amount of money. In other words, that one would have been a lot of money in that day, and they would have gotten the fact that, well, that's a significant debt. In other words, the listeners could actually wrap their head around that one. Everybody get that? See, the problem is they couldn't wrap their head around the other one. But they could wrap their head around that $10,000, $11,000 number, and they thought, that's a lot of money. Okay? So he goes out. He says, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell down to the ground and began to plead with him. He used the identical words that the slave number one had used before. Have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went out and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved. Now remember, you got slave one, slave two, fellow slaves. So what we learn by implication is that all these slaves were servants of the one great king. That's an important note. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, the Lord, the great king, said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Here comes. Should you not also have walked in the force of my opinion, above your opinion, and in the same way, extended the force of my opinion above their opinion. I've, I've really got to say this right this morning because there are people sitting here, precious people of God, who know Christ as Savior. I'm, let, me, let me come back to that. And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. Did you note the word torment, torture, in the Luke 16 passage when they talk about hell as the place of eternal torment and torture? There is not any theologian that believes this passage of Scripture means that if you don't forgive someone, you're going to hell. How many are relieved this morning? I hope nobody raises their hand. Okay. But what does it mean then? He says, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. Now, how many know that he can't repay that? Does everybody get that? Remember hyperbole, exaggerated amount? So this meant never-ending torture. So how could he possibly ever pay that back? The only way it could ever be paid back is if he accepted the opinion of the king that released the debt. Then verse 35 says, My heavenly Father will do the same to you if each of you does not forgive brother from your heart. Now, watch. You're sitting here today, and if you know Christ as Savior, if you have declared in the biggest sense, please listen closely, if you have accepted God's opinion that God is God, Jesus is his son, he came to earth, he lived, he died on the cross to pay what you could never pay in a thousand lifetimes. He paid a debt you cannot pay and the opinion of the great king is you're forgiven. You're released. You feel that? You're forgiven. Paul would write in great detail using those same economic terms. He paid a debt you could not pay. That's the story. He comes before the great king, and the great king says, $8 billion. 
It meant a debt he couldn't pay. Beloved, these disciples did not know it then because Jesus was telling the story and he had not yet died for their sins. But they would know it after the cross and the resurrection as they revisited this wonderful story and say the king showed up and the king offered that which was most precious to pay for what I could never pay for in a thousand lifetimes. And because of that, I am eternally removed from ever being eternally sentenced to a place of torment and separation of God. I have a guarantee in my heart that I will not live in eternity in whatever environment it is that is insulated from and free from the force of God's opinion and mercy. How many are thankful for that this morning? Come on. No, yeah, yeah, how how many, yeah, my goodness. But I said to you earlier that judgment has an eternal, and if I were teaching a theology class, I would say, and then an existential, meaning right now, reality. But what do you mean? It says in this story that great, you're not going to hell. But you will live right now, right here, today, with the force of judgment brought to bear on your life. Jesus uses this same motif in other places. That that first servant walked out unable to comprehend the significance of what had happened. And because he did that, he he refused to accept the opinion of the king. How many know when you walk out of there and you've just been forgiven $8 billion and somebody comes up and says, man, I I really know I owe you all. How many know a hundred days, one third of a year's wage that this guy owed him? That is not inconsequential. That was a whole lot of money. The the hearers would have gotten that. The first one, they would have said, who can even imagine? But the second one, they would have got. See, in the same way, we tell our story about we're believers at some point. We've been born again, and we've been forgiven of our sin. Nobody can wrap their head around that. But if you begin to tell a story of a Cub Scout leader that molested you over the course of a year, scores of times, and every time would tell you, here's what happened, we begin to feel the pain of that and the bite of that and the reality of that. See, we can wrap our head around that one. As horrible as it may be, and as much as we would never want it for any of our children or any person here to happen, we can begin to wrap our head around that. Listen to someone's story about how they were abused and taken advantage of by a spouse who then just left them and left them out cold and treated them horribly with amazing injustice. We can wrap our head around that. We can get our head wrapped around that. We can't the other one. But that God would burn on our hearts the awareness that, son, I've empowered you with a wealth that is beyond any debt that can ever be levied against you. What happened? He walked out and he still believed that the worth, his worth, was more informed by the transgression than by the provision of the king who paid the debt. Unforgiveness exposes me to a judgment where the force of mercy is pulled back from my life and there's this sense of Chinese water torture dripping on our life and pinging us. You know what I'm talking about. You've been around the people. The sourness shows up. They're bitter or hurt. 
what's been done to them by someone in their life. As I mentioned earlier, a spouse, an ex-spouse, a spouse they're with right now. There's unforgiveness in marriage. Listen to me. Do you realize that this was so ingrained in this man's life and consciousness that he couldn't even see it for what it was? There for us in this room, there are those of us here who you've been hurt by anything and in fact is you were hurt. The fact is, if you were to tell your story, people would agree. Do you get what I'm talking about? The hundred denarii. People would wrap their head around it and say, that, you, that's wrong. That was unjust. It's not a matter of whether or not your story is believable or conceivable by someone you would share it with. What it has to do with is, am I going to walk in the economy of a broken person who hurt me, who dictates my worth to me, and their opinion essentially, watch me, their opinion trumps God's opinion on what my life is worth, because I've modeled this before you and didn't attend today. Here, son, take this. This is my heart. There's a piece of it. You took it. You're wrong. I need that back to make me whole. First Peter chapter 1 says that we are made whole, whole by the blood of the Lamb. Not by silver or gold. Not with anything here. We are made whole by the blood of the Lamb. So watch what happens and why in Matthew chapter 5, Pastor Matt and I were talking about this. You want to know why it comes back to mind in worship and churches services like this? I don't know why, but God, Jesus said it would. He says, if you're on your way to offer your sacrifice, and then you remember. You want to know why? Please, saints, listen to me. If I've ever preached an important message, it's this one. This is a place where we gather. In my father's house, there's a place for me. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. This is the place where we come to sing about, celebrate, and embrace the fact that our worth and identity is informed by him. And so I offer up my heart. When it says singing, making melody in your heart to worship, why do you think it is during worship services that it would be very likely that a point of unforgiveness will come back to your mind? Because that point of unforgiveness is the place that I'm ultimately looking to for my worth. I'm insisting that you bring back that God, he needs to bring it back. See, but the great king said... I've paid a debt you can't even imagine that you could never pay for in a thousand lifetimes. Well, Lord, how did you pay for it, great king? I paid for it, according to the apostle Paul, with the death of my son on a cross whose blood made a payment you could never pay for in a thousand lifetimes. But I gave it freely with purpose and great compassion towards humanity. I gave that and my son has paved the way. Well, thank you, Lord, and I'm grateful for that. But, but they did wrong. And look right there. But Tom... And can you see a father grabbing my face? But Tom, don't you understand that, 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 that they can't make you whole? Why is that? It's theological, it's biblical. Because there is only one who is holy. There is only one who has the power to make me whole again. And it is not him. It is not any other person. Let me tell you, there can be a thousand pieces of your heart torn off. And, and you can only have this piece left. And everything else is gone. If everybody who took a piece of it, and perhaps like people I've counseled too many times, I had one brother sit in my office and name over 30 people in the last church he was in who heard by name, carrying that. All he had, Pete, was that piece. There were 30 other pieces floating around out there, and it broke my heart. 
that you understand even if 30 people lined up and brought them back by your basis of justice, they do not have the power to make you whole again. You're looking to the wrong place. And if God says, but Tom, I've forgiven, I've released, I've rejected their opinion and every other opinion. Well, God, I need their opinion in addition to your opinion. Your opinion's not enough, but Tom, my opinion is what drove my son to the cross to pay a debt you could not pay, and he paid a debt he did not owe. He didn't need to. Well, I know that, Father, but it, it, my heart is everywhere out there, and I need it back. But Tom, they don't have the power to make you whole. Oh, I know that great King and Lord. I get that, but it's wrong, and I'm going to get that back. And, 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 and but, but Tom, that can't happen. Well, I get that. Don't you know that I paid with the cross with my son? I, well, yeah, but Tom, don't you know? I don't care. The cross isn't enough. Watch. God goes. I believe with tears running down the face of an eternal being. He looks back and says, There's nothing, I, I can't even get to you with mercy. You've chosen to walk in an opinion. You've, you've blocked my opinion out. Now there's nothing but torment. You're sitting here today, that little card you hold in your hand. I have prayed and fasted for deliverance today. Let me I need more time. See, it shows up in ways. Here, let me give you an indicator. Whenever you have conflict with someone, you flip the narrative to tell them how they're greater or or they'll flip the whole thing. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Come on, you know what I'm talking about? You flip the narrative because this thought of you having more debt than that debt is just inconceivable. So you, you, you put it right back on them. It happens in marriages. There are hurting marriages here today. I said that two weeks ago, that you live in it and you don't even know it's there. But right now, the Father's bringing it to mind. Take that little card. Please take that card in your hand. Randy, would you drop that on the stage, please? And wherever this thing is, I need that. I want to pray for you today. We're going to do something. This looks like a humble little thing. I want you to take that card. I want you to just, it's private. It's between you and God. Let's say, I want you to take that card. And there should be pens in the back of seats around there. All I want you, you don't have to write any story. God already knows. You could even put an X on the page. Because for some of you, it's so risky, you wouldn't even want to write the name of the event because you're scared to death someone else would see it. God knows. I'm telling you, you can just put an X on the page and say, God, you know what that is. This is going to become, this will have tears involved, but that's not where it lands. Uh, E flat. Why? Because here's what's going to happen as you come here and you take that paper and you stick it there. It doesn't work. How do I turn it on? 
Who knows how to work this? Thank you. The fact that you know something technical that I don't is a scary proposition. Look at that. Come on. I wanted that, this in the shadow of that on purpose. But it's not going to be just tears. When I think about the Lord, how he saved me, how he raised me. How he filled me with the Holy Ghost and he's healed my soul to the uttermost. That's what's going to happen here today. When I think about the Lord, how he picked me up and he wiped away my debt and my sin and everything. I want you to pray this prayer. We're all going to stand up. And there's more of us here than not. That right now, God's brought it back to your mind. And we're going to come right here in the shadow of the cross and say, Father, may you shred this in a thousand more pieces that can never again be assembled, that can never be put back together like a broken puzzle, that can never be brought back to mind. You may have to do it again next week. Let me tell you, I wish I had more time to teach on the nature of unforgiveness, but that's okay. But you're taking up a posture that as often as this comes to mind, I want it shredded from my consciousness. I don't want it to be a factor that dictates what's coming next in my life. But everyone stand together. This is our altar call. And the prayer is going to be, I need prayer counselors and elders down here quickly. And we're going to, what you're going to do is, I, I don't know the best way to do this. I'll tell you what, 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 I, I, here's what I do. Because I, I, I think if everybody sort of figures out a way to come down the center aisle and then you, you each go out that way, I want prayer counselors and elders and el- prayer counselors and elders, you come first right now. And if you've got a card, I want you to start there. I'm not putting leadership on the spot. I love you all in there. Father, I want whatever to be shredded, erased, Lord, in the name of Jesus. May his discipleship he imparts to so many be like crazy never before in Jesus' name. Come on. May you just shred that in Jesus' name never to be assembled again. Thank you for joining us for the New Hope Sermon of the Week. For more information about this podcast or other resources, visit newhopeonline.com.